0: the Sea to Sky, episode 7. Um, it's been pretty wet out here on the west coast, but considering that the temperature has been slowly dropping as we head into the winter months, a lot of rain down on the ground means a lot of snow that's going to be coming up on the slopes, so at least there's going to be that to look forward to. Um, in terms of uh, news uh, for the week of November 7th, the first bit I guess I'd like to point out is that Goro Miyazaki is going to be... Um, unveiling his new film under studio ghibli the first cg feature earwig and the witch it's going to be ghibli's first cg animated feature based off a novel from the same author of howl's moving castle diana wine jones and it's going to be released on the NHK General Channel on December 30th out in the States. But I would imagine G Kids is going to be able to get us a new uh, theatrical release for us in North America sometime around mid to late uh, 2021. So that's going to be, it's interesting to look forward to, to say the least. I haven't seen any of the trailers uh, leading into it, but a lot of the screenshots definitely is a departure from any other of the 2D styles, of course, considering that it's in a different 3D CG production that Ghibli is most noted for, but it definitely seems like uh, the only person who could probably bring that into the forefront would be anybody besides um, Hayao Miyazaki, and so it fits that it's his son who's uh, helming the project and essentially bringing Ghibli into a new stage. I mean, in terms of the stuff that I've seen from him, wasn't really a fan of Tales of Earthsea, but the more down-to-earth... Um, story related to From Up on Poppy Hill, regardless of the uh, conflicts that happened in the later portion of the film, was incredibly soft and inviting and a really just laid-back look of the mid, um, in the middle of the century, for Japan. And it was honestly a really interesting uh, story leading off from the uh, youth of that generation on the post of World War II. So... At least the most positive thing I can say about him is that he definitely knows how to set up an environment, even though he does get a lot of help from his father. It's still going to be an interesting uh, project to look forward to anyways, and I'm honestly curious to see when it's going to be coming out and when I'll have the opportunity to see it. Leading into what Crunchyroll has been uh, pushing out, no big news on how the merger's been going uh, between them and Sony over the past couple of uh, weeks, but at this point in time, um, Anime NYC is going to be hosted online and powered by Crunchyroll. From November seventeenth to the twentieth, um, from those you'll at least be able to watch live streams of industry panels coming in from Crunchyroll, Aniplex, Kodansha, Yen Press, Studio Chizu, and Retro Crush, as well as right stuff. So I'm honestly going to be, I'm honestly curious to see how that's going to be uh, pulling out throughout the majority of the virtual cons that went through over the summer. I haven't really been able to catch most of them, and the ones that I did see were kind of underwhelming. It did give me a couple of good industry panels and um, essays and reviews to watch over for a couple of hours, but even with the vast amount of ones that have been trying to transition in these troubling times, it's going to be interesting to see how something Crunchyroll is going to be sponsoring will be pushed into the limelight. So I'm curious to see how that's going to go out. In terms of what Toonami has been pushing through the majority of the fact, they're going to be starting their own showing of SSSS Gridman, which will air in uh, January of 2021. And honestly, Trigger did a fantastic job on this show. Um, over the past couple of years, I haven't really been keeping too much up with the tokusatsu or the uh, fighting style that they've been um, that has been going around over the past couple of decades. The only essential uh, experience that I've got with that is the old um, localization of the Power Ranger shows that came out to us in the early 20, uh, or in the early 2000s. So I really don't know, even though I didn't know as much as, as it was going into, the show itself was an absolute treat in comparison to a lot of the uh, standard mechas that have been popping up through and through over the past decade or so. So honestly, it was an incredibly fun watch and something that I would recommend to anybody who's still looking for something mecha to essentially take down and cleanse their palate, which is also going to have me looking forward to their next project, SSSS uh, Dunzion, Zion which is also going to be coming out and was sponsored and licensed through Netflix. That's going to be popping up in 2021. So I'm also curious to see how that's going to be uh, pulling out uh, next year. The last piece of news I guess I'm going to be going through is that Naoki Urasawa, the author behind Pluto, 20th Century Boys, and Monsters, says he's been making an anime in one of the recent interviews from Big Comic Spirits magazine. The only work of his that I have seen recently, considering that I haven't read any of his uh, huge manga bids, considering that 20th Century Boys and Pluto have been looking for various ways to try and get themselves into an animated adaptation and try and get that out to a more global stage, even though anybody who has read it apparently has um, been showering it with praise. His only bid that I've seen, at least in this point in time, was the animated adaptation of Monster, which was an incredibly satisfying uh, noir slash thriller-esque style um, with a lot of mystery and a lot of nuance and a lot of just danger and character and just an international, not necessarily spy thriller, but just a mystery and phenomenon based on a lot of uh, falling overs through the post-wars inside of Europe And it's been really interesting to kind of see him trying to get his uh, feet back, uh, his feet wet back into the lake and trying to diversify. But apparently he's making anime based off of one of his own properties and he's hoping that he'll be able to get it out to anybody soon. Not necessarily the project, but at least have a good idea of what the title is going to be, give everybody a good idea of what essentially he's going to be making over uh, the next couple of years. And I'm really curious to see uh, how that's going to turn out. Now, it was really interesting, or not interesting, it was kind of difficult to jump through uh, and find a topic going through this week, but thankfully, um, searching through what ended up finally uh, coming out to air, which I was kind of curious to see if they were actually going to be able to get this project out on time, considering through COVID and everybody else working from home, is that Rooster Teeth this weekend was finally able to get the first episode out for Ruby Volume 8. Now... As much as that kind of argument has a little bit of a stigma going through with uh, North American properties such as Castlevania, Avatar, and Ruby, not necessarily being anime, they are definitely anime-adjacent or just anime-inspired, much so to the degree that you could still put them in the same basket or the same uh, category as the rest of these shows, considering how much both their creators and their stories borrow from the same uh, caveats in the media of, um, of anime. Now, it's been an interesting ride over the past couple of years. I definitely, I remember watching the first handful of Ruby trailers coming out um, near the tail end of, I believe it was um, 2011, it was either 2011 or 2012 um, when the first trailers came out. Ah, it was 2013, near the end. Eh, hold on a second, that doesn't make any sense. The yellow trailer didn't come first. Yeah, it was 2012. That's, yeah, that makes a lot more sense. I guess they had to uh, re-edit it and re-upload it considering that there was no way. I remember watching that trailer back in high school and there was um, an incredible amount of hype behind it considering that the late Monty Ohm was the one who was helming the project and considering that the work that he was able to pull out on Red vs. Blue and a lot of the same uh, 3D CG elements and assets that he was able to upload onto his uh, YouTube channel, his experience preceded him and everybody was hyped considering that Him, uh, uh, Carrie Shaw Cross and Miles Luna all were going to be coming together and making this heavily anime-inspired work that was going to be underneath the umbrella of Rooster Teeth with a handful of people who were still very passionate about the medium and about the project that they were going through, and I was incredibly interested to kind of see what they were able to pull out, and the first season, while a bit up and down, was kind of um, had some shaky moments, but also some that legitimately made your mouth drop to the floor. It was an amazing feat of animation that they were able to uh, come together and while although it was rough around the edges in the beginning of its production, as the years have gone on, it has just done nothing but improve on its mistakes and continue to strive forward in its way of its own. So I guess from now at this point for the rest of the uh, for the rest of the episode, I'm going to be pointing out major spoilers for the rest of the Ruby um for the rest of the story of Ruby and the entirety of its uh, timeline. So that's all about that I can say leading into the rest of the episode, but if you're still interested in what I have to say and kind of how the show has been pushing through the past couple of years, then you're welcome to stay around. Leading into that, I really enjoyed this in the beginning, and I don't think my enjoyment has waned over the past eight years that I've been uh, watching this series grow and blossom into something even beyond that they could have ever imagined. Um... Of course, with the tragedy of Monty Ohm essentially having the third season being the last one that he was able to work on, everybody was really curious to see if what he was able, what he brought to the table and what would be missing and what uh, Miles and Kerry and everybody else on the writing and production team would have to uh, make up to try and just move on without such an integral part of the process. And of course, I would like to say, and I'd have to say, there's no going back. There's this will always be a lesser show without his involvement, but that's that would have made sense with anybody being dropped from this project, whether it was an animator, whether it was anybody of the writers, whether it was Miles O'Carey or anybody. If there was anybody who was involved in that tragedy, then of course this is not going to be the same. Of course this is going to go into a way that not many people were expecting, and that there would always be lacking some sort of personal flair that any individual, a part of this project, would have been able to bring through. So that's kind of... A little bit of a caveat that I don't really like that everybody decides to try and criticize and complain that Monty wouldn't have let this happen. Monty would have made things different. He would have written things differently. And honestly, I just can't give any less of a fuck about that considering that the show and how it's evolved over the past eight years has still been on a really good steady track of pace and quality that there is nothing that I can knock it for. As much as I would like to, you know, it's easy enough to criticize it, but I think I would just like to stray away from that. Well, there will be some pieces of criticism that I would uh, go towards the show, that happens with every single piece of entertainment or content that I decide to consume. So that it doesn't necessarily change or separate from the fact. So moving into this series, um, as the animation went through... Like, regardless of how the seasons have gone through, it's kind of been amazing seeing how the how the assets have evolved and how the characters have moved and who they've been able to incorporate as well. And, of course, Monty's cuts are going to be always remembered inside those first three seasons as some of the highlights of it, which is definitely understandable because the man was a genius like his like his maneuvering and adaptability of 3D and of 3D assets and being able to manage the majority of that stuff throughout a lot of his CG works especially the stuff that he was able to go through in his work on Red versus Blue and his creative fight choreography and everything that went through oh my god it was just absolutely amazing there was nothing else i could have done that would have just given me Um, any less appreciation for the man and what he was able to accomplish and how much of a personality and how well he was able to go through. But before I just keep going on and on about Monty all day long, it's definitely something that needs to be uh, given praise. What Carrie and Miles have been able to accomplish over the past eight years, especially with how the story has evolved, how the rest of the characters have been moving forward, and especially with what's been going through. So I guess Pre-Volume 3 and post-Volume 3 were just two entirely different bids, but also in terms of loss of innocence and and character growth, which was incredibly easy to come across when the world, is coming down around your ears. I mean, it being just a regular high school you know, superpower rom-com, or not rom-com, just action romp uh, based inside of uh, Rooster Teeth Studios, and a lot of it taking inspiration from all the anime that every single piece of the puzzle has been able to consume over the majority of their lives. It was apparent, but also incredibly fun to watch and see how that went through. And them being able to grab... Um, big studio names at the time, Vic Mignogna, even though they had to part ways with him, were very understandable circumstances based on the controversy that followed around uh, a lot of his events. Um, and Doctor Who himself, which of course I'm just going to be completely blanking on, also was able to take care of one of the... Uh, no, sorry, I'm jumping ahead. That was... um. Genlock, definitely. That's that's what I was looking for. And that was honestly a fantastic uh, piece of animation as well and a really good show, which I hope they'll be able to come back. But even though I understand the, um, the conflict behind it and what happened with Grey behind the scenes and how they were moving around assets that were definitely not needing to be prioritized, it's kind of unfortunate that that's how they had to part ways under such a fantastic production that was Genlock. But yeah, no, there's... Uh, there's not really much else I can say about that point, although it's just, it's just tragic. Although, just moving forward, I'm trying to figure out what essentially would be probably my favorite volume of the series so far, considering that it's been so long, and I haven't re-watched um, the first season since 2013, when it first came out, um, currently I have volume 8's going along. It doesn't seem like it's going to be the final volume, I but I think it's going to be a minimum of 9 and a maximum of 10. Because they're at the very they seem to be at the very tail end of the story. And I don't think that it would take them too long to finish it up. So I'm thinking it's going to be either nine or ten volumes at the end of the day to try and sort out what the rest of the um, series is going to be. But I think once I know uh, when when the final season is going to be coming out, whether that's uh, nine or ten, that's when I think I'm just going to go back and jump in and just kind of think, okay, now is a good time for me to go back and rewatch all of this because I've been doing so, or I have done so over the past year and a half with series that I did end up watching. Specifically, back in 2013. Now that I think about it, considering that's very common with a lot of the stuff that I was going through. Um, you know, in 2013, I started not only Ruby, I started Attack on Titan, I started Game of Thrones, um, and with Game of Thrones' final season uh, ending in the summer of 2019. For the entire year leading up to that, I re-watched most of it with my family, which was incredibly interesting since all the lore that I was able to figure out, everything that led up to the final season and trying to figure out what the missing gaps were. And it's a testament to the show, even though I had absolutely no idea what was going on and why the families were in such turmoil and what the background was and the fact that this show started at the tail end of a civil war that essentially tore the most of the kingdom apart. It was an, it was insane going back and having that kind of hindsight and that knowledge. And, and regardless of how long the show was, that kind of um, bid with the in- extensive lore that goes through just garners itself to be very rewatchable. And I feel like the same thing is going to be happening with Ruby because the other show that I've been jumping into right now that I've been watching over the past couple of weeks and catching up, which of course was Attack on Titan, the final season is going to be airing December 7th. That's going to be the final bid. I know it's the final season. And I've been catching up considering that I haven't I didn't I hadn't re-watched the first season since 2013, when it's when it came out and when it started airing. And going back, knowing what I now know, what the characters were able to, what characters were focused on, what was essentially not like just hidden in plain view in front of you, but you just didn't have the knowledge to put it together at the start. Um, has been making that rewatch incredibly satisfying, and of course, I really just hope it doesn't go the way of Game of Thrones when it's all just the only thing, the only thing that Attack on Titan needs to do there is just end at a semi-positive note, because honestly, Season 2 and Season 3 were like some of the most entertaining uh, pieces of television that I've seen like in the past three years, especially with the second season coming out in 2017, and even though the third season was split up into two different cores with having 22 episodes total, it was some of the most engaging and enthralling television that I had seen in a long time. So I really hope, because that's the only thing that, which unfortunately, the studios were moved based on the uh, production schedules not lining up. So even though Studio Wit has been covering it for a good six years, it's now being moved on to Studio Mappa, who is going to be tasked with completing the final season. And even though it's a different studio, I'm not going to completely fall into despair just yet because it, it it's incredibly tough. I didn't read the manga like so many others did. It was incredibly interesting to see how many people— I would imagine, they, I would after two years, considering that the gap between Season 1 in 2013 Season 2 in 2017 just garnered a lot of people to their cause, and considering that the show was just such an, uh, such a phenomenon and just a trending and mainstream show when it was coming out around the time that anime was still getting scoffed at, riding on the tail end of Sword Art Online, which was incredibly successful— In the previous year of 2012, an Attack on Titan bringing a lot of stuff to the forefront in that regard. It was really, it was unfortunate to see that it took so long that they couldn't, even though they had lightning in a bottle, they couldn't really act on it, considering that they were already so far back in the production of everything else. So they couldn't really just go and immediately start the fire again, which is incredibly unfortunate and definitely understandable why so many people decided in the span of those four years to finally get into and jump into the manga for its monthly release. So at least, you know, at least it was monthly. Uh, at least they were able to get it at a consistent rate in comparison to stuff like uh, Hunter Hunter and Berserk, where we have no fucking idea when the next chapter is going to be coming out. At least Attack on Titan was consistent. But now that we know it's going to end, we know that it's going to go through, It's I've been catching up, and the rewatch has been incredibly satisfying of Attack on Titan for... Uh, for the past couple of weeks and it's going to be even bigger. I really hope it's going to be as big of an event as the previous seasons have been able to uh, garner and I can just only hope that Attack on Titan's third season just finally ends off on a positive note and I don't have to deal with two instances of incredibly long-running but shitty endings to two series that I enjoyably or that I love to an nth degree within a span of 18 months. It would it would just fucking suck, dude. But getting back to the topic at hand, um, getting back to Ruby, it's... So kind of the same deal. I I guess I'm just retreading ground here. Whether I I think I might actually just in 2021 just catch up and rewatch it anyways, regardless if uh, volume nine is going to be the last one or not, because it's just been so long and it's been it would be incredibly interesting to go back and see where the changes uh, lied, where they decided to try. And do something new, um, how they were able to adapt the production and kind of push it into a more regular serialized um, collaboration of episodes. Because, I mean, they did 16 episodes in the first season, but that was because they were incredibly short in the sense that um, episodes could go from anywhere between 12 and 14 minutes in the first and last to just four and a half. Um... So there, so that's definitely a good reason why it was only sixteen. But now everything has been twelve to twelve to fourteen episodes long, considering that they've been able to push the production to make the episodes anywhere between sixteen and twenty four minutes long, in, into like a regular televised uh, and serialized production. It's been so long since I've like I've seen these characters and like watched the genesis of what they of when they were created and going through because I do remember having just a little bit of a shaky start, especially um, once we passed uh, halfway through the first season, considering that once that went through, we were following Jean and his trials and tribulations and somehow like trying to figure out what he was um, interested, like what, how, why he was interesting and what he was going to be able to accomplish because he was, the, he was going to be the zero to hero archetype and trying to learn and like figure out how that was going to go. And the first two seasons did a really good job at at least fleshing out like why those characters were going through and then focusing a little bit on, I remember Blake definitely got a bit a bit of it, and how crazy a lot of the good fight scenes were in season two, especially like, I still think one of my goddamn, like, it, for a series that has an insane array of like wild and distinguished weapons, I mean, just literally Yang's gauntlets to, um, to Ruby's and Crow's uh, dual sights. And just the simple version of Pyrrha's spear and shield, it was just incredibly interesting to, like, just to see the creative ways that these guys were able to incorporate all these weapons into an incredibly engaging and entertaining fight scenes. It was honestly fantastic. And, of course, poor Jean being, like, the simplest of the group, sword and shield, come on, buddy, You're you're in a world where gun Chucks exist. <laughs> like when we first saw um, Sun Wukong and his first fight in season two, where it was like, "Oh, cool! This dude's got a bow staff. Oh, the bow staff splits in two. Oh, the two sticks turn into nunchucks. Oh, the nunchucks are literally uh, lever-pulled mini shotguns that turn into the coin term of gunchucks, dude." <laughs> Uh, I'm just going to lose my mind going back and like watching those action scenes because that was definitely the biggest part that people were looking through. I don't think we had as much time to get to know the characters because it was an incredibly large cast of people that we had to uh, learn and appreciate and just try to understand and watch them grow into their own separate people and just their different fighting styles and personalities and what their future, um, and what their future just lied ahead of them, and it was, and that was, it was fun, like, these two, first two seasons were incredibly fun, and then volume three is when just everything changed, exactly at the beginning, just so at the beginning of the Avatar, everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked, everything changed when the Red Fang and Cinder's forces invaded, and it was just the end of the beginning was such a poignant title for the final episode of this season cuz this is just what everybody thought was going to be just a regular high school romp and everybody's going to have to defend this just defend the city and defend beacon and everybody's going to have to learn and grow and understand all of their powers and go through beacon falls it it falls the school is abandoned and defeated everything just falls apart we have our first set of legitimate character deaths that happen for the major they're going to be the first of many in the series. It was fucking insane what they pulled off and just throwing everybody just under the bus and everybody was just in the dark on what was going to happen, how this was able to occur, and what was going to happen next this was the This was the prologue. The first three seasons were a prologue leading into the greater conflict that was going to be happening along remnant. Of course, Beacon was just a really good backdrop and a very standard um a very standard high school romp where everybody has superpowers and cool weapons and everything was going to go through and then it was just a loss of innocence and everything around them burned and characters were physically and emotionally scarred. They were separated which was the, which was just one of the biggest punches to the gut where for a show called Ruby and focusing on the four main girls and how the majority of their friends interact and how they were going to save the day, the end of the third season and leading into the beginning of the fourth just has everybody stranded on their own. Yang, Yang's back home. Blake is just... Blake just left on her own to see what she was able to accomplish and see what she's able to stop the Red Fang. Um, Ruby is just... Ruby now has to go and join Jean's group, considering that God, with the dis- with the ending of Pyrrha was just an absolute gut punch. It was insane. That whole event, that entire final few episodes where you thought it was going to be the battle for Beacon. It was going to be the last stand, a grand defense with the with all of the eyes of Mantle just firmly placed on this one tournament. The guy, the bad guys, even with a small force in numbers, were able to accomplish every single goal that they were able to um, put out. And that was just insane. And, of course, everybody was curious. So now everything's to shit. Everybody's split. Everybody is just going their own separate ways and trying to figure out what they're able to do. But with the hints that they were able to uh, portray at the end of the third volume and the greater narrative that was being at work... Um, They just had to move forward and try and find as many answers as they could. So season four was definitely weird considering that it was definitely a transition. It was trying to get all of these characters to recover and try and get over their trauma, which is an incredibly fucking difficult thing to do where in the majority of the stuff you have, one of your characters fail, but considering that a lot of the shows that come out nowadays, especially in anime, if you have, like, one horrific or traumatic moment, it only takes them an episode or two to get back on the horse, considering that it's, hey buddy, TikTok, 12 to 24 episodes total inside the majority of the stories that were only allowed to be given, so you better get over that and start being able to train to fight the big bad by the end of the series. Otherwise... We're not going to get the ball rolling, and it's going to be a very unsatisfying conclusion, so it's like, a, I don't care what emotional or physical trauma that you've had to endure in the past episode, so get over it, buddy. And the fact that the majority of the characters inside of season four are sitting around just trying to get over their depression and trying to figure out what they're going to be able to do next and if they can even move forward at all, it was definitely an interesting path to take. But something that was definitely necessary and something that was incredibly satisfying, definitely for Jean's group, considering that they were the ones that had to grow in the absence of one of their leaders. And Jean had to step up. Jean had to take more of an of a leadership role that he was never expected to take. He was the zero. He was the one that three volumes ago could barely ride on a ship without vomiting. And now him and his friends are now just portray, um, just traveling along this dangerous wilderness being hunted by grim or worse is just was incredibly harrowing but seeing jean come into his own in volume four after losing the one that he loved and trying to figure out ways to distract himself i guess it was one of the only ways that he could to finally move forward and try and just not lose anybody else he couldn't lose anybody else and so far he's been able to do a pretty damn good job at that so it's been incredibly satisfying watching him grow as a character and moving forward in the rest of uh, of his training and his mentality, and taking that leadership role and pushing it to the next level. Um, I'm trying to think because it was it was really awkward, especially considering that Volume Four, you never really got to see Ruby, the titular characters, come back with each other. But finally, after, but I'm pretty sure it was incredibly satisfying in Volume Five to see them after nearly two seasons finally be reunited. It was honestly glorious. It was incredibly satisfying to see all of them, even at the end of the rest of it, just satisfyingly be um, brought back together under (laughs) under the worst of circumstances. It was definitely a lot more interesting, and I was thankful to kind of see them finally be able to try and rebuild the bridges that they had all lost at the fall of Beacon. And that was honestly fantastic, especially especially Raven's characterization being Yang's biological mother and just seeing why she abandoned, seeing why she didn't trust Ozpin, seeing why she kind of tried. (laughs) Tried is a very strong word to being a mother because she has absolutely no experience and then of course it doesn't work. I'm really glad that the show treated it as it was and it was just and even though Yang or Ruby and them aren't necessarily... They are related by blood, but a lot stronger of the connection came through with Raven. But even Yang was able to recognize, okay, now you're trying to be a parent. This is how you think it goes. I'm sorry. That's not how it works around here. You can't just expect me to trust you and build a relationship with you and abandon every other friend and every other piece of family that i know loves for me and cares for me and you really expect me to just throw it all aside to try and rebuild a relationship with you and she just gives her the metaphorical finger and just moves on with her life and goes back to the family that she knows loves her and knows that goes uh is going to be by her side and it was an it was fun to see that even though they hadn't seen each other in months after such a traumatic event and seeing the fall separate them to a degree, it was also kind of satisfying to see that not all of the wounds healed and not all the relationships were perfect and set in stone, even though they were able to get back together, they still had some trials and tribulations that they had to move forward. So that was still incredibly nice and adept, um, and adept writing to just kind of see them, even though walking down a rough path in the beginning, they were able to find a much grander meadow to walk along once their relationships finally started to heal, especially with Blake's re- uh, reintroduction to the group at the end of the season. Now, uh, 6 was a really weird transitional bid, but it was... See, volume 6 is definitely the best of the series in terms of lore, and... And even though it took six seasons to get here, we finally understand why the grand conflict is going on. We understand why all of these horrifying grim and conflicts have been going through and just ravaging the entire continent as a whole. And being the longest episode of the, of the season out of nowhere, it was incredibly satisfying and an incredibly adept and really interesting way about how they were able to tie the rest of the series together and say and t- and just explain why we are fighting and who the real enemy is and why everything else is trite and nothing else matters kind of like the white walkers in the sense that all the wars that are happening in the seven kingdoms there is a greater threat at work and unless we band together and try and fight there is nothing that we are going to be able to do to stop the impending storm when it comes to devour all of Remnant and plunge it into darkness. So I really liked that kind of adaptation and kind of showing finally after all these seasons what the grand threat was and where everything essentially was birthed from. Everything everything else, the action, the... The big character moments, I could kind of see a couple of, uh, like, carries, bids go through because there was a giant mech at the end of it that had a drill for a hand that defeated the big bad, and now it's just kind of like, okay, so now we got to go through and see, um, now we got to go through and try and warn the biggest military force on the entire continent what is coming, why it's happening, and what we can do to stop it. And it's unfortunate because... Uh, Just going through and remembering all of these episodes and trying to figure out, it just didn't really work for me. It just was, it was definitely interesting just kind of seeing how everybody was going through, but it was also just really unfortunate just to kind of see how it goes through. Just, I would have to go back and rewatch it, which I probably will in the new year, but it's just that everybody is thrown against each other for for not necessarily no apparent reason, but Ruby kind of made some bad decisions, which of course, she, of course the character can't be perfect, but why she would withhold that information under the sense that, uh, that Ironwood was unhinged before, but the fact that she was able to withhold information and not give them the full picture, that was kind of the reason why everything kind of fell apart, and she's feeling the unfortunate repercussions of those actions at the beginning of season eight um, with everybody not being on the same page and not everybody seeing like the various priorities that have to be taken place and the ones that have to be um, understood but it's because of that now that Ironwood is completely gone off the deep end it's just going to be really interesting to see where the rest of it goes because I was so shocked like it was one of the biggest cliffhangers that I had ever that I'd ever seen in like several years with just, oh, look, we didn't really get much um, where, the, where the radar wasn't able to pick up any of the other grim, And so now all these grim are making it through. And okay, we just dealt with the final wave. We kept the Winter Maiden out of the grasp of both Ironwood and from um, Salem. And it's like, okay, well, now we just have to protect Penny and just try and figure out what we're going to be able to do to stop Salem. And then Salem... With her horde of darkness, her big-ass party whale, and her armada of grim at her disposal, showing up when everything is at their most dire, and everyone is just at at some of their lowest lows throughout the entirety of the season, and going through, and now the big bad decides to say, fuck it, and walk up to Atlas who is now incredibly handicapped after losing a lot of their uh, military prowess, and just Salem walking up with uh, with a military force greater than the biggest one on Remnant, and just saying, "Fine, I'll do it myself," was just such a big fucking cliffhanger and such a ridiculous way to end this at the to the end that season, and was like, "Holy shit." I really, I really don't know what I'm going to do once this goes back. And then unfortunately, a month and a half after this uh, season ended, quarantine hit, everybody got forced to work from home, and I honestly didn't realize until a week before that, oh yeah, Volume all you made is still happening, Rooster Teeth is coming out and putting this show and they're going to be going through since the, even though quarantine has been going through and their entire production has been separated and most of them have been working from home and everything else has just been kind of thrown in and just doesn't have a lot of leeway they're going to be putting it out anyways and there haven't been any issues with the first episode at least with the production that i've seen and i'm really curious to see what um they're able to accomplish With all of these obstacles that have been going through. Season one, or not season one, episode one of this season so far is intriguing considering that there's a lot of stuff that they have to pick up off the ground to try and scavenge whatever they can in order to fight the oncoming threat. But the greater question at the end of it all is how are they going to even win under these circumstances when not only Can they not trust their friends? Can they not trust their military? Can they not trust the man who was guarded with protecting the entirety of Remnant under his own mission? But how are they going to stop the greater force and the ones that is going to ravage the entirety of the continent and through her own means and through her own agenda with her power that she is so close to holding plunge the rest of the world into darkness and chaos and lead it to its end. So honestly, Miles, Carey, you've been doing an incredibly good job, the Rooster Teeth production and the rest of their staff. I can't thank you enough for creating an incredibly... Um, Uh, interesting and engaging story that has been bringing so many people together over the past couple of years. And I'm really hoping that with the rest of the stuff and how the world's been going through that you continue working and continue pushing through and moving forward because you have made so many people, including myself, happy with the worlds that you have been able to create.